Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The gospel shows itself as establishing two things. It's going to establish peace and it's going to establish love. The way of violence, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, it does not know. And so in the picture of scripture, there is a personal universe created by a personal God. And true knowing, true wisdom is further entry into the freedom of the interpersonal relationship we can have with God. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That's Galatians 5.1. And then John 8.36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Peace and love achieved through this freedom that we have in Christ sums up the gospel. There is a gospel that is taught that says there is no freedom, that we are totally depraved, that the only freedom we can hope for is a kind of future freedom. I mentioned Josh Hawley this morning. He's a very bright young man, has degrees from Stanford and Yale. And yet I'm afraid that this understanding that there's no capacity for free will actually makes free will in his estimate a kind of bad thing. And so what I want to show is that far from a lack of free will, the whole point of Christ's message is the restoration of human freedom and human agency so that we might become, as James is going to describe it, people of wisdom and people of peace. And all of this is summed up in James 3, which describes, if you listen very carefully today to my 10 points, that's a lot of points, but the the idea is that we'll achieve wisdom. Now, the reason that Martin Luther did not like the book of James, he says that James is an epistle of straw, was precisely because of what I'm about to say today. It's evident in James that people can rid themselves of sin, that we can achieve a kind of fullness, and that we can do this through human freedom, that we can come to a wisdom. And so the straightforward teaching of James, and it's not just James, I think it's just the New Testament, is that people can be righteous. And it's not simply a theoretical or legalistic righteousness, but we can produce good works. That's what James is going to say. We have the capacity for freedom, freedom of thought, freedom of action. And this freedom, now certainly it can be perverted. James is also talking about that. So let's read James 3 verses 13 to verses 18. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds in gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. 
This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So he gives us these steps. And step one is the one who has understanding. He's going to demonstrate this in the way that he acts. In his gentleness, in his good behavior. But jealousy, selfish ambition, arrogance, he says they're a lie. That's an interesting way to put it. They're a lie against the truth. And this sort of knowledge or wisdom, he says there is that wisdom, but he says it's not true wisdom. It's not God's wisdom. It's earthly. It's natural. He even says it's demonic. And so the disorder that results from selfish ambition and jealousy exposes the evil origins of this false wisdom. I think that's a key clue. There's a hard fact. We can identify the wrong sort with the sort of people that have jealousy, ambition. And far from a lack of freedom of will, this verse suggests that there is a failure of understanding or a failure to exercise freedom of choice. It's not a problem, you know, that, that we do have in Martin Luther and John Calvin and Josh Hawley, the, the kind of hardening against the notion that we can exercise free will. But this is clearly the teaching of the Bible. Step two, the wisdom from God shows itself in that there is no admixture with immorality. It is pure. And purity without evil, James is saying, the New Testament is saying, that is a real possibility. We can be pure. In fact, not only can we be pure, we're commanded to be pure. And where the earthly sort of wisdom shows itself in immorality and impurity, well, what you're saying is if you can't be pure, evil is a necessity. The New Testament is saying evil is not a necessity. Jesus commands perfection. Matthew 5.48, he says, Therefore you be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. But there is a form of Christianity that lends no credibility to this capacity for maturity, fullness, freedom. And this, of course, is the justification. Oh, we have to do evil that good may abound. Or we have to have evil leaders that good, you know, may be enforced. Step three. And this one, I'm going to hit it once and then I'll hit it again because that's what James does. He's going to talk about this one three times in these few verses. The heavenly wisdom is peaceable. And he's saying that if it's not peaceable, if it's violent, it's a lie. 
It's not true. It cannot contain the truth. Justin Martyr, who was one of the great apologists of the early church, he writes to Emperor Titus because Emperor Titus feared that the Christians were insurrectionists. You know, they're organizing and they are meeting at night and they say that they have a different Lord. And so the emperor's getting nervous about these Christians. And Justin writes to him and says that he need not fear the Christians because by definition they are nonviolent, not insurrectionists. They've all forsworn any kind of violence. And Justin explains in his apology, you know, apology not in the sense of saying I'm, I'm sorry, but in the sense of a defense to Titus, he says that Christians have turned from violence to cultivating piety, justice, and love. That's what James is saying. That's what we're about. And they have turned their swords into plowshares. You remember the verse, right? From Isaiah 2, from Micah. And their spears into farm tools. I don't know if you saw the video of the insurrectionists. You know, they're invading the capital. Remember the guy with the big horns and all the tattoos? I don't know if you saw the video, but they got in on the Senate floor. And the guy had a bullhorn, the guy with the horns. And he said, okay, let's all pray. And he took his horns off and his hat off and all the insurrectionists take their hat off and they dedicate their insurrection to Jesus. In Jesus' name we're doing this. And throughout the Old and New Testament, the idea is, as it is in James, that the kingdom of God is peaceable. If it's not peaceable, it's not the kingdom of God. A key passage that Justin quotes to Emperor Titus and is in fact the most quoted passage from the Old Testament. If, you know, they really didn't have the New Testament yet. It is this passage from Isaiah 2, chapter 2, verse 3. And in the last days the mountain of the Lord shall be manifest and the house of the Lord on the top of the mountains. And it shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations shall come unto it, and many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, unto the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his way, and we will walk in it. For out of Zion shall go forth a law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many peoples, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Isaiah 2 reflects a central theme in the Hebrew Bible. This theme is going to be picked up in the New Testament. And the idea is Zion is the center of the world. Zion is the mountain, you know, that the temple is on. And it's lifted up that it is the center of a new creation that in the future is going to unfold and the nations are going to be healed 
from what divides. They're going to be healed from violence and war. And as the nations stream into Zion, they come together in a unified worship that Jesus talks about in the high priestly prayer. As the mountain of the house of the Lord is established as the chief of the mountains. You know, what's the significance? Well, mountains are often a place of worship. And those other places of worship are going to be undone. I know in Japan, one of the holiest mountains, you all know the mountain, right? Mount Fuji. And we live right by Mount Scuba, where the gods descended on Mount Scuba. Isaiah says the oaks of Bashan, he's going through other religions contemporary with him. The lofty mountains along with the instruments of war, every high tower, every fortified wall, all the ships of Tarshish, you know, ships of war, all the pride of man, he says in verse 13 to 17, will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased. The instruments of war and worship or all that goes into nation building will be undone. Violence is undone. And all nations will participate in Israel's worship. And of course what he's describing is what has come true in Christ. There is a simultaneous movement up to the mountain of the Lord and enabling to walk in his paths. That's what we're reading about in James. That we can walk in the path of righteousness. We've been enabled to do that. There's a movement, a teaching of Zion. It pictures this as going forth. And it, the Hebrew is it's going downward and outward into the whole world. And as a result, the court of Yahweh will replace the battlefield of the world as all people instead of crafting instruments of death they will cultivate life who's he talking about he's describing the kingdom of christ god's reign in isaiah's vision is the kingdom established in the new testament in fact we can describe the reversal you know the bible begins in a Edenic kind of paradise. The world is without violence. And then Cain slays Abel. The generation of Noah create a situation in which the earth is filled with violence. What was a garden becomes a cemetery. But now warriors are turned into gardeners. And swords are beaten into plowshares. The other thing, the world's languages are confused. And the word confusion is actually the etymological root the, through the German that we get the word war. It's not only etymologically true, but literally true. It's synonymous with the scattering, the enmity of violence. But in this picture of Zion in Isaiah... All people are united, they gather into a singular place of worship, and they're instructed in the singular word of God. That sounds a lot like what happens on the day of Pentecost. That sounds like the word of the gospel 
going out into the world. And this temple restoration sets the cosmos revolving around a new order of peace, shalom. You know, in Isaiah, he's even going to describe this as nature itself, that the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the child will play over the hole of the adder. The poisonous snake is no longer poisonous. And all of this is brought about by the branch of Jesse. It's a messianic passage referring to Jesus. The messianic figure will establish righteousness upon the earth and nature herself will be relieved of all violence. You know, this is a famous passage in Isaiah 40. You remember Martin Luther King. We just celebrated Martin Luther King Day. And he has his speech, I have a dream. And he's actually quoting from Isaiah 40. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall re be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. He's describing a vision in which black children and white children and people of all races can unite in love. So from verse 1 we understand in chapter 40 this straightening of the rough places, this lowering of the high places is synonymous with the fact as in Isaiah 2 and as in James 3 warfare is ended, peace has come. In Isaiah's description peace is the purpose of religion, of Israel's religion. And this peace is fulfilled in the person, in the branch of Jesse. Then a shoot in chapter 11 will spring from the stem of Jesse and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And as a result, righteousness will be established in all of the earth. And the wolf, you know, there's that wonderful passage. Actually, you know, there is no lion and lamb laying down together. Uh, that doesn't appear in the Bible, though we all know that. It's actually the wolf and the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. There is peace among men. And there is peace in nature. There is a new harmony that is created then in and through this branch of Jesse. And so the lesson of Isaiah brought to culmination by Christ, who is the true cosmic temple, is that the children of God, they need to put their trust in the Lord. You know, what's happening in Isaiah? Assyria is about to destroy Judah. And the prophet Isaiah says, don't trust in chariots, horses, or swords, but trust in God. Jesus taught that peacemakers are the children of God. And he demonstrated in his wilderness temptation that you're going to refuse violent power, right? Satan says, well, we'll make you president. He says, I don't want to be president. We'll make you the Lord of the earth. He says, I refuse that. In other words, he refuses the temptation to become a violent Messiah. He demonstrated the peaceful healing of the nations 
in his healing ministry. He's healing people, not as an end in and of itself, but to show this grand healing of peace that is brought to the world. He casts out the demons that are violent, and he is feeding and liberating the hungry and uh, oppressed. He embodied the vision of Isaiah, the vision of peace in which each will sit under his own vine and fig tree. And he called for love of neighbor and of enemies, and he called for his followers to offer no violent resistance. And so he sent them out as lambs among the wolves to carry out the mission of peace in this violent culture. The point is you can summarize the life and ministry of Jesus as a defeat of violence, a bringing about of peace, an institution of the vision of Isaiah. And that's what James is talking about. Step four then in our wisdom Heavenly wisdom, he says, is gentle and humble as it is accepting of the other and can listen and receive from the other. Verse 17, we can say that humility is its own epistemological, its own method of knowing, of wisdom. I believe there's a religion that teaches arrogance, that would teach you to pump your fist and stand up proudly and say, I'm one of the elites. The kingdom of heavenly wisdom is humble. It's without arrogance. It's gentle. It's peaceable. Step five, heavenly wisdom and knowledge are reasonable. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> the gospel's reasonable. Which means that this sort of knowing is not contradictory. It is not a dialectic between two kingdoms. It has a singular frame of understanding. It doesn't contradict itself in two different logics, two different ethics, two different kingdoms. And of course what I'm describing is the reformed tradition that would separate the heavenly kingdom and the earthly kingdom and the role of the earthly civil government, you know, in Luther's picture, is that God is doing one thing with his left hand, and God is doing another thing with his right hand. One is the earthly realm, one is the spiritual realm, and never the twain shall meet. That's not reasonable. That's not the way that God functions. And there's been all kinds of justification of evil government and evil purposes by Christians, but the New Testament makes no provision for Christians aligning themselves with two kingdoms. Christians only acknowledge one true kingdom, that of Christ and the body of Christ. Now certainly we live in the city of man, but the city of man is not how we determine how we act, or what our ethic is, or what right and wrong are. The gospel's reasonable. Step six, this wisdom is full of mercy and grace as it is a gift to be received and given. What's being described, you know, you're a, a new kind of economy. Mercy or grace is characteristic of this wisdom, of this knowing. It's a personal giving. God gives himself and everyone who would know receives himself in the gift. 
Grace is not a limited possession given to a few people by a stingy God, but it is the characteristic form in which God comes to all of humanity. In the wisdom, in the knowing that is characteristic, that we can all enjoy the good grace of God. And so the early Christians understood this. You know, they understood Isaiah. They understood this universal grace as enacted in the church. This chapter that I read from Isaiah is the most quoted text from the Hebrew scriptures. Origen, writing in the 240s, he presumed that every person who is a catechist or one who is being taught Christianity is going to learn, he's going to memorize Isaiah chapter 2. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And Justin uses this in his defense against Titus. He writes, We who were filled with war and mutual slaughter and all wickedness have each and all throughout the earth changed our instruments of war, our swords into plowshares, our spears into pruning hooks. And what do we do with those instruments? He says we cultivate piety, justice, love of humankind, faith, and the hope which we have from the Father through the crucified one. Step seven, this knowing produces good fruit. Christianity is known by its fruit. I'm afraid there's a kind of worldly information that is mistaken for knowledge. You know, we're inundated with information today. But that's not what James is talking about. He's talking about a personal applied knowledge that gives forth in wisdom. Information is something very different from wisdom. This knowledge, this wisdom bears fruit. And I think it's in contradiction to a faith which imagines, you know, that we do evil. This is Paul, actually. He's saying, you want to know what perversion is? Let us do evil that good may abound. Paul says, that's precisely not the wisdom of God. Christianity is known by its fruit. And so the first Christian community, up to 300 A.D., they refused to participate in the insurrection. Rome came in, destroyed Jerusalem in 70. It resisted any form of military service. Christians refused to kill on behalf of Caesar. And discipleship, you know, what is discipleship preparing for? A lot of it was preparation for potential martyrdom. Because martyr is witness. Same word. You want to be a witness for Christ? Be a martyr for Christ. The practice of forgiveness. The application of the works of mercy. The cultivation of patience. All of this. You know what James is describing. Is what is described in the early church. As the non-retaliatory gospel. Non-violent gospel. Christianity is known by its fruit. And so prior to the conversion of Constantine, there is no Christian notion of Christian warfare. That would be an oxymoron. Christian insurrectionists. Christian violence. Unheard of. 
Those two things do not go together. So much so that one of the famous saints in the early church, his name was Saint Maximilian. His father was a famous general. And they expected Maximilian to become a, an army general himself. And he refused conscription into the Roman army. And he was beheaded. And at his trial, this is what he said. I cannot serve. I cannot do evil. I will not be a soldier of this world. I am a soldier of Christ. You cannot serve God and Caesar in this fashion. And Maximilian then is quoted for centuries as a part of the mass or a part of the worship service in the early church. And he's a saint because the early church sought out those modeling the nonviolent Jesus. It was understood. Jesus' broken body that we celebrate every Sunday is not simply another religion of sacrifice, but is a model that accepts brokenness. Rather than to break the bodies of others, we take that unto ourselves. Christ submitted to torture and execution so as to overcome the violence and death which has the violent kingdoms of this world in its grip. Christ rose from the dead and he sends his disciples into the world to defeat death and violence and the violent way that deploys death. Christianity produces good fruit. Step eight. This knowledge is unwavering. James will emphasize there's no double-mindedness. There's no being tossed about. James warns that the double-minded man who seems to be pitted against himself, you know, the idea here of a hypocrite is actually referring to an actor who wears a mask. On one occasion he puts on the mask and then he puts on another mask. James says that sort of hypocrisy does not occur in the church. One need not switch roles or moralities or methods. Unwavering. Step nine, the summary and sign of the true knowledge, this is key, is that it produces righteousness. What is righteousness? Well, that's equated with salvation. The righteous knowing, this righteous wisdom, I'm afraid in an evangelical or Calvinist understanding it's out of court. Yet it is the summary of both James and Paul's picture of the point, the end of the gospel, is righteousness. That you can be righteous. Step 10. James triples down on peace. He said it above and now he says it two more times. He mentions peace as the method. It's the means of sowing. And it is the point of the sowing. What is sown by those who make peace? Peace is the point of James' teaching. It's the key point, right? Freedom, peace, virtue, they're not delayed for a future heavenly kingdom. They are the goal of this present earthly life. Further, this loving of wisdom, this knowledge, gives rise to community a peaceful living together, that you pursue this corporately. You're drawn together in fellowship. You pursue understanding together. Rather than the sort of alienating sense 
of communities drawn together by what they oppose. Oh, we're not this. No, this is a community of loving, knowing, which integrates us into the thought and lives of other people. You know, this is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Father, let them be one as we are one. Pursuit of unity. That is the sort of wisdom which integrates us into an ever-expanding community of persons. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.